Welcome to BIV Today, the daily business news podcast from Business in Vancouver newspaper and BIV.com. I'm Tyler Orton. Now, later on in the show, economist Jock Finlayson from the Business Council of British Columbia. He expands on his latest column in Business in Vancouver, which is examining how the region's high housing costs. I know everybody's shocked to hear we do have high housing costs, but how those are dissuading interprovincial migrants from moving to BC. So I know it's not a new story that we have expensive housing, but Finlayson, he's actually going to take a look at the changes in historical patterns behind this trend. And then a little later on, Kirk LaPointe is going to join in on the show. And Kirk and I, we're going to speak to KMAC Group CEO Keith McIntyre, who's recounting his career landing pro-athlete sponsorship deals with some of the world's top brands. Now, Keith is the author of On Your Mark. It's a new book that's discussing how his work with the likes of Wayne Gretzky, Shaquille O'Neal, Katrina Lemay-Don, and Steve Eiserman has influenced the way that he does his business. But first, let's go to Jock Finlinson from the Business Council of British Columbia. Well, for the past few years, BC's economy, it's been benefiting from a surge in interprovincial migration. And with a strong economy here, as well as the highest job vacancy rate in Canada, workers across the country have been able to justify a move over here to the West Coast. But things, well, maybe they're changing just a little bit due to a number of factors. And of course, because this is a Vancouver-centric show, I think we'll probably talk a little bit about housing affordability here. And joining us today to discuss his latest column in Business in Vancouver, it is Jock Finlayson. He is the Chief Policy Officer and Executive Vice President at the Business Council of British Columbia. Jock, thanks for joining us on the show once again. Good to see you again. So BC, tell us a little bit, give us a little background of why it's been benefiting from all this interprovincial migration just uh, over the last few years now. Yeah, well, it it is a cyclical sort of phenomenon uh, as Within Canada, some provinces outperform others. We do see that showing up in migration flows. And every quarter, there are tens of thousands of Canadians who move from one province to the other. In recent years, until just the last few quarters, uh, BC was uh, experiencing a fairly substantial surge in the number of, of people relocating here from other provinces. And I think that reflected a couple things. One was the strong provincial economy in British Columbia, and particularly a buoyant job market. And secondly, the effect of the oil price collapse in Alberta in uh, that began in late 2014 and then stretched into 2015 and 2016. Prior to that, we were actually seeing quite a few British Columbians move to Alberta for high-paying jobs in the energy patch. That then reversed uh, rather quickly, and we saw Alberta losing population to the rest of the country, including BC. So at one point, we were seeing uh, close to 20,000 a year uh, of migrants moving net, migrants uh, moving to British Columbia. So in other words, the number coming here minus the number of British Columbians leaving added up to 20,000. And that was uh, certainly augmenting population growth, but also labor force growth. And uh, uh, our view based on the last three or four quarters of data is that 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 time period has come to an end and it looks like there's a real slowdown almost moving down close to zero in terms of net migration from other provinces so is that perhaps because if you look at other provinces like 
I don't know, Ontario, Alberta, we actually see their economy strengthening. Maybe it's harder for some of these people to say, you know what, I'm going to move over to BC, or maybe some of the British Columbians are looking at those two provincial economies and saying, hey, there's some good opportunities there. Why don't I look elsewhere right now? Yeah, I think uh, there's there's a number of factors at play. I would distinguish Ontario from Alberta, you know, for analytical purposes. Ontario really has had a strong job market in the past couple of years. It slowed down a bit lately. Um, but the unemployment rate's gone down. The job vacancy rate's gone up in Ontario. Growth has certainly accelerated. And that's kept more Ontarians at home. And it may well have attracted some people who used to come from Ontario who had relocated to other parts of the country, particularly in the West, to, to go back home. So that's for sure. Alberta, although they're still struggling, I think, with the aftermath of, uh, of the oil price collapse and the longer-term shifts in global energy markets, as well as pipeline constraints and a whole variety of things that are impinging on the energy industry, in terms of overall economic and job growth, Alberta has certainly picked up in the past year, year and a half. And that is reflected, I believe, directly in the data <clears throat> that we talk about in the column. And, you know, I, I mentioned this at the top, but I mean, we also have a lot of conversations here about what housing affordability means for being able to attract talent and also to retain talent. Is this something that you guys are concerned about right now at the Business Council? Yeah, you know, every time we have a meeting, of our board of directors or our various policy committees, this topic very quickly comes to the table, regardless of what the what the reason for having the meeting might be. So we do hear a lot of concern about the ability to attract and retain talent uh, and the financial stress that households face and businesses because of very, very high land and housing costs in uh, in Metro Vancouver in particular, although it's spreading out to the uh, Victoria region in the, in the past few years. Um, we don't have a lot of really good data on that, so most of what we hear is anecdotal. Um, and I would characterize it this way. Most businesses are able to get entry-level staff. Uh, so these are basically what I would describe as the frontline workforce in the service economy, or in the case of the high-tech industry, people with the university and technical credentials to fill entry-level jobs. That We seem to be okay on that. There's, there's a decent population of, um, of, of young working-age adults here uh, who are being churned out of our post-secondary institutions. So that, that is not yet a severe problem. Uh, where we hear more of these kind of anecdotal stories is around the inability to attract what I would describe as mid-level uh, career people into, into Metro Vancouver uh, from outside of the province or even outside of Metro Vancouver. And the housing costs are clearly a big issue there. There's no question about it. Uh, we have a very odd combination of among the most expensive housing in the world coupled with very mediocre incomes. And we've had that for a long time. And, and it, it, it's unlikely to change in the near term. We also uh, are seeing some evidence that uh, as younger families form in Metro Vancouver, in other words, somebody's 25, they take a job at a tech company or a bank or another institution, and then they find a partner and then they want to start a family and move out of their 500-square-foot condo uh, into larger accommodation that really there's nothing available in the market that's affordable. So this is the so-called missing middle that some people have talked about. Uh, we have high-end housing. We've got lots of closets that people can live in, small, you know, bachelor and one-bedroom units. 
but there isn't a lot on the that's been developed for the market that's really geared to young families, particularly that's affordable. So I think that's driving some people out of Metro, uh, not just young adults. I actually have a good friend who is just about to sell her condominium, and she's still got another 15 to 20 years of work in front of her, and she's decided to get out of debt, sell her condominium, and leave Metro Vancouver and go somewhere else basically a housing arbitrage uh, opportunity. And I think we're going to see more and more of that, but uh, we don't have good systematic data on it, though, I have to be clear. And, and I, I guess that kind of answers my next question, but I'll throw it out there anyways. We've had a new provincial government for about a year, and I'm just wondering for maybe a policy perspective, are we able to determine whether any of the initiatives that they've taken to address this housing affordability issue, have they been effective? Do they look to be as if they're on the right track just based on a policy perspective? Well, if the government's goal is to cool the market uh, and reduce speculation, reduce non-resident demand, particularly from foreigners, uh, I do think if that's their goal, uh, then I think the policies that they're that they're bringing forward are having some effect uh, along those lines. The market does seem to be cooling, particularly for single-family homes. Um, one would assume. Uh, that the higher foreign buyer tax uh, and the extension of it to more communities in the province is going to have some dampening effect on foreign demand. Um, and, we, you know, we have a bit of anecdotal evidence that that is the case. Um, and maybe the proposed speculation tax that we don't, you know, we don't have the final details on that yet, that, that may be discouraging some activity as well. So I do think I don't think their their program is terribly well thought out in some ways, but I do think it's probably beginning to have some effect on the market. Yeah, a lot of people use speculation tax in quotation marks because it's not necessarily what you would think of as a traditional speculative tax there. It's really a non-resident wealth. Yeah. So the other thing is that you mentioned the missing middle then. I, I'm curious then, are we going to have to look to, I guess, or municipal governments to actually figure out maybe different zoning in order to create, you know, just a, a better way to get into that missing middle, create a lot of housing that would accommodate a lot of these people. Yeah, I I think the municipalities are in a difficult position because the you know escalation of land and and, and housing costs has caught some of them by surprise. Um, there's a lot of pressure in local communities not to densify. Uh, there's an absolute need to densify, but there's you know, in neighborhoods, a lot of people don't want to densify, puts the municipal politicians in a bit of a bind. But if we want to provide a, a mixed kind of housing stock for the working population, and, and again, I, I don't really care about the non-residents. I'm mainly interested in the well-being of the working population here. We need to be looking at every tool in the toolkit, frankly, both municipally and provincially, to encourage housing supply to come on the market that is geared to meeting the needs of those young families and that kind of working population uh, who are, I think, uh, really disadvantaged in this region today if they're not already in the market. So I'll leave you with this question because you had mentioned earlier on that this is very much a cyclical thing. And I'm wondering if we just sat back and didn't necessarily do anything uh, we, we could watch, you know, the, the numbers wane here in, in British Columbia with regards to interprovincial migrants. If we just sat back, would we expect, you know, that those numbers to eventually increase in a number of years? Or are there factors that we would want policymakers to enact to ensure that we do have kind of vibrant labor mobility going on throughout the country? Yeah, well, the country benefits uh, from the ability of Canadians to move from province to province for to go to school for employment reasons, for retirement reasons. And that is, you know, that is a, a strength, I think, of the Canadian model. 
in this region, um, uh, British Columbia, I guess one concern we, we articulated in our column is the BC government in its forecasts for the economy and more importantly, its forecasts for labor supply and demand out to the next decade is assuming that we're going to get kind of net interprovincial migration of 10, 12, 14,000 a year. Based on the last three or four quarters, they may need to re rethink that because we're really moving rapidly to a world where there is no net interprovincial migration any longer into British Columbia. And if that's true, um, then it's going to have some economic implications. But more importantly, it's, I think, going to play out in the labor market. It's going to tighten the job market even further in a structural sense uh, because we're not going to get, we're not going to have the augmentation of the local labor force from people moving elsewhere in the country if the data for the past three or four quarters persists, if the, or if the trend for the past three or four quarters persists. Um, so that I think I think the province has got to sort of retool its or recalibrate its labor supply demand projections uh, to catch up with what appears to be a fairly significant shift in interprovincial migration. That, that, that's one of the one of the points we made in the call. Okay. Well, I trust you'll be following these numbers very diligently, and we'll be following up with you in the coming months and, and years as we watch this particular trend here. But, Jock, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. Okay. Thank you, Tyler. That's Jock Finlayson. He's the Chief Policy Officer and Executive Vice President at the Business Council of British Columbia. You can find his latest column at BIV.com. From Wayne Gretzky to Shaquille O'Neal, our next guest has worked with some of the world's most notable athletes and matched them with many of the world's top brands. Keith McIntyre is the CEO of KMAC Group, and he's also the author of On Your Mark. It's a new book on business. And Keith, I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. So you often have to pair businesses with athletes and figure out what's going to be the right fits and negotiate, make deals, hammer out what's going to happen here how do you determine what is going to make for the best fit for any given product, any given person in these situations? Well, it really gets down to a couple things. Uh, for, number one, Tyler, it's really about looking at, at opportunities through a different lens and unlocking hidden value and opportunities. So really trying to find the fit, it, it's really about understanding motivations. Uh, what are the personal motivations of the organization? What are the motivations of the individual people that we're dealing with uh, working at that company? We have to put those two purposes together. Once we identify a set of criteria, then we go out into the marketplace and you find the various um, athletes or celebrities that then fit into uh, that mold. But you have to be able to go deep and look at the challenges much deeper and learn how to extend that type of relationship far beyond um, a traditional endorsement deal. What I mean by that is understanding the motivations of the athlete as well. You have to put all of these pieces of the puzzle together, and that's when you come back with a winning program. You mentioned the word purpose, and I think that that's a pretty instructive one in this case, and motivation and all of this. What, generally speaking, is the purpose, do you think, of athletes matching up with companies beyond the sheer dollars? Well, athletes, um, they they have uh, they do have egos, and they all have personal motivations behind it. So, for example, um, when I was working with General Mills on the Olympic programming over the past few many years now, 
A guy like Steve Eiserman, money's not a concern or an issue for him, but once we got to know Steve inside out, he was able to uh, come on board with us, and he just thought it'd be really cool for his daughters to uh, be, you know, see their dad on a breakfast uh, cereal box in the morning. Yeah. In another, you know, another instance would be like a Roger Clemens when he was with the Jays and he uh, wrapped up his fourth Cy Young. Uh, the challenge uh, that we wanted to put a, a high-profile person like Roger on the, the Wheaties box, for example, and what worked really well with that is that uh, I asked Roger a very simple question. I said, do you have a family portrait of the four boys that you have holding your four Cy Youngs? And he said, no. And uh, and that was the uh, that's what made it, that's what made that deal happen. It, it's getting deep, being able to understand what makes these guys tick. Uh, Mario Lemieux, another individual I worked with uh, in a healthcare company for atrial fibrillation, and Mario did not want to do a deal in a traditional media sense. So I had to carve out ways. It took me about six times to reach him to understand what was holding him back from wanting to be in the public. Having understood all of the issues he's faced uh, in his career uh, media since he's been a little guy, we had to refocus it to tie it into the business motivations of being an owner of the Pittsburgh Penguins. And how can we parallel that with the motivations of a new CEO of a large pharma company? When you put those two together, that's when it's a win-win. So you really have to figure out it, it's you've got to put a service first. You have to put the winning context for your client as an entrepreneur. You have to put the win in for everybody involved. And that's when you or we as a KMAC organization um, experience success ourselves. So, I mean, you're talking about some very notable names here, Iserman, Lemieux, so on and so forth. I, I mean, I'm interested in the process of this. Are, are you going to them directly figuring out what the motivational factors are during discussions. How do you land some of these big names out of the gate? That's a great, uh, a great point. And that is, um, I've always really loved uh, sports and I, I've loved people. And you really do have to look at opportunities through a different lens. So when I started the KMAC group 26 years ago, I knew I wanted to work with athletes. Uh, I wanted to work in professional sports. I mean, that was a, a driving force for me. And I knew I wanted to work with Fortune 500s. Business is what we're all about, and Fortune 500s are what drive us. But I didn't have any direct connections. So I had to ultimately make connections. And what I was able to do successfully is connect with the equipment managers of the NHL teams and the Toronto Blue Jays. Once I connected with them, I found out what their motivations were, and I created a win scenario for them. And by serving them first, they then connected me with the athletes. So how that started is most of the organizations, companies were hiring athletes like Arnold Palmer, Michael Jordan, really marquee players. And what we did is I went um, anti um, high marquee player and I went to uh, lesser well-known individuals and I got to know and, and demonstrated to the locker rooms that I was very capable of building uh, a player's profile, their equity, and meeting their needs. That then became uh, a platform that I could deliver to corporations across Canada, the Procter & Gamble's, General Mills, the Johnsons & Johnsons. And the way that works is once you understand what the needs are of the, of the company, I could then find regional players uh, right across the board through the networking of these uh, equipment managers. 
And having said that, I was then able to uh, create awareness where the marquee players started uh, paying attention and they would come to me direct, not through their agents. And that again is how you unlock hidden value to really deliver what you need for your clients. Keith, I'm really interested in the path that a, a marquee athlete takes. You talked earlier about Mario Lemieux being surrounded by people probably since he was six and seven and eight years old as a great hockey player. He would have had to come to understand also the business of sport pretty early on and likely you know, have a good uh, idea about the fact that he was going to benefit considerably from it. So he took a path that was very clearly inclined toward understanding finances. Is it the case, do you think, generally speaking with athletes, that the best among them are also really solid business people? The Most of them do have a very solid plan. Um, I wouldn't say that most of them are business savvy, but they, they've had to learn. Uh, a lot of them have had uh, very strong support networks behind them that allow them and help them make those types of decisions. Um, but when, when you take an individual like a, a Mario Lemieux, uh, as a player, he didn't get paid for the last several years of his uh, uh, contract. Yeah. So Mario had to learn uh, part of what his agent had negotiated was this ownership structure of the Penguins team that was that was in bankruptcy. But Mario was astute, and I asked Mario the ticket to success. I said, "How how is it that the Penguins on uh, in a bankruptcy have now won these cups?" And he said, uh, it, "It's preparation and organization by hiring the best people to do the things I I am not good at." Mm, yeah, and he said that that's that's what builds this uh, this uh, team overall. Yeah, he um, he very clearly had his own form of sweat equity in there, right? He, he literally, very, very literally, literally yeah. With Absolutely. Other, with other athletes, and, in terms of what they're seeking in this case, uh, are more and more now starting to try to find a way to fit where they extend their careers post playing into um, into some kind of front office or partnership or equity position stake. That, that is, is that becoming now a bit more of a trend too. It appears to be that uh, they, they realize that careers are limited playing times. And <clears throat> sorry, excuse me. I always um, uh, talk about what I call the sequels trap. And one of the biggest challenges today, whether you're an athlete, uh, whether you're in business, and it's a, being stuck in a pattern of sequels where we try to replicate other others' success. So if somebody is doing something, we want to follow it, and we do it at 60, 60 to 70%. So uh, back when Frito-Lay uh, was launching Lay's in Canada, you remember, you may remember the Becky Can't Eat Just One campaign with Marc Messier. And that was a campaign that their, their agencies wanted to recommend Wayne Gretzky. And I was able to get into that meeting and aim higher in a different context, bringing in Marc Messier for this uh, campaign that, that had a good 15, 18-year uh, run. And it's because um, I was understanding, Mark, where he was with the Rangers at that point, where he was uh, prior to even heading to Vancouver, but then understanding Mark's post-career aspirations. So able to help him build his network, his profile. Uh, Steve Eiserman, very similar. Uh, Steve, when he was finishing his career with the Red Wings, was very interested in the business side of, of sports and wanted to um, wanted to mirror 
a lot of what I did from a business end so that uh, I would take him into meetings with Procter & Gamble so that he could see the business side of how things were done. So they're taking steps to prepare themselves. Huh. I, I, I'm flashing back now to the Mark Messier era of uh, Vancouver, and, and it's been a while, Keith. So I do appreciate those uh, fond memories, <laughs> if you want to call it that. But uh, on the by, by side, the way, Messier is the right choice for that because I can't imagine Wayne Gretzky taunting me about eating just <laughs> I, one potato chip. I remember that particular. But, commercial. but Messier was the right guy yeah, to yeah. basically get in my face. <laughs> well, and that's way. that's a really valid point, and, and it goes back to what I was mentioning about a sequels trap. The the natural tendency. For, for organizations is to go with what's working, what's high profile. And Wayne had the highest profile. But when you're at a sequel's trap, Wayne had uh, five or six uh, major endorsements going with major companies. So what I mean by sequels is that you're becoming one of eight, seven or eight endorsement programs. So your competition is all these other companies that have signed Wayne. Mark had nothing. Mark represented what the target wanted. This is about creating new ground. This is unlocking that hidden value. So this is if you're an entrepreneur looking to to achieve these things, this is absolutely critical. Well, Keith, very cool stuff that you've been involved with. And and I want to repeat that again. Uh, Your book is called On Your Mark. And I want to thank you for joining us on the show today. That's great. I appreciate that. And if anybody's looking to improve and take a look at about mindsets and and various successes, it's based on a lot of the uh, uh, patterns and trends I've identified over years of working with all these athletes. And uh, my purpose really is I've just, I've been very fortunate to meet a lot of great people. I've had people help me. My job now is to be able to share my learning so I can help other people uh, bring their ambitious visions to life. So thanks for having me on. And thankfully, from our standpoint, you don't have to be an elite athlete to benefit from your wisdom. Yes, very much so. (laughs) Absolutely. Uh, Great. That's Keith McIntyre, CEO of KMAC Group. And that's it for BIV Today. Thank you for listening. Make sure you tell your friends to subscribe to us on iTunes and Stitcher. And don't forget to leave a review. And be sure to find our stories, of course, in print and online at BIV.com. 